0: Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai Zhan at our website, JohnStation.com. coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai. I'm Bryce Witwan. And I'm Ali Kasmi. And today, Ali, is our 22nd episode. We started nine months ago. Can you believe it? When this program will air. Nine months, dude. And we've already hit the 40,000 download mark on our way to that 100,000, hopefully soon. And we want to thank everyone that's taken the time to listen making the show takes a lot of effort and we really appreciate any bit of help you can give us by liking or sharing the podcast with anyone that you'll find value with our guests that with the information they have to share also a big shout out to one of our listeners who left a little comment on facebook which i think is so appropriate today ali you can leave china but you can never take china out of you and in today we are going to talk about taking brand china to the rest of the world and to talk about this we have scott kronick he previously served as the asia pacific president of ogilvy public relations covering 15 countries he continues on with ogilvy pr as a senior advisor to chinese tech brands including zte and baidu He's also the author of The Lighter Side of China, which is a balanced view of US and China relations. We will post all the links in the show notes. Every week, he serves up positivity in an increasingly polarized world on his website, Scottchronic.com, which is the website is called Monday Morning Mojo. We'll talk a little bit about what that mojo is. He's also an adjunct professor at Beijing University's Guanghua School of Management and lastly, for anyone that knows you, you remain one of the most admired leaders in the PR industry, and both ex-colleagues of Ali and me. Welcome to the show, Scott.
1: I thank you. I, I think I've tapped both of you uh, probably more times than than you've tapped me, but uh, I, I really appreciate both of your expertise. So thank you for that.
0: Awesome. In today's episode, we're going to talk about growth of China's export brands and the opportunity they are creating for thousands of manufacturers and service providers. According to Brand Z, China's top 100 have already exceeded $1 trillion in value. And many of these brands, our listeners know, they've grown twofold by seven years ago, including Tencent, Alibaba, TikTok, Huawei, Neo, Lenovo, Haier, Maotai. And in another survey in late 2021, commissioned by Google and Kantar, 20% of people from developed markets are aware of these brands. So it goes without saying, Scott, that the 25 years that you've been in the PR business, you must have had something to do with this phenomenal growth of brand China across the world. So I guess one of the questions that we have for you today is when did China start taking brands seriously I mean, we can think of the genesis as being two historical events, one which we all know, which is probably the Beijing 2008 Olympics. But there's another one that you can maybe share our listeners about is a historic event, maybe lesser known. And then you brokered a deal between two technology giants. Uh, could you share that? And what was that like?
1: Well, let me, let me first say, Bryce, I think you and I have about the same trajectory in China, I lived in Beijing for, for 29 years. Um, I think it's about a similar amount of time that you've been there. I think, you know, I never bumped into Ali as a elementary school kid, but uh, he was there at the same time as us. So I believe we lived through the best part of China's trajectory. I remember back when we started Ogilvy PR in China, I was, you know, just taking any jobs that I could do to establish ourselves, press conferences, this and that. And the more that we did, the more that you started to see, this is in, I I moved to Beijing in 1995, that Chinese companies began to have like a brand religion. They didn't even know what brands were, but they had this belief that they had to, build a brand and the reason they saw that is because western brands sold at a price point almost double triple what Chinese brands were creating but when they peeled away the onion they're like we're making the same stuff they're making it's just comes at a different price point so that was like a a, an, an evolutionary period throughout the mid 90s to 2000, I really think that the brand religion stuff and, and Ogilvy benefited a lot because we tr- we positioned ourselves as the branding agency and the branding agency that helped brands at every touch point with the consumer, that really accelerated through the early 2000s. So that's the period when I feel like this brand religion that every Chinese company felt they needed a brand, and they wanted to go out to experts to help them create a brand. It was around 2005, I think, Lenovo became a global sponsor to the Olympics. They clearly had intention to become a global brand, and they uh, sponsored the, the Olympics, and they hired us to do the kind of the reach out to the foreign press to get them to cover this. And so we did that, and that started this process. We had been working for IBM on the public relations and the advertising side, Ogilvy had, for several years in advance of this. We got a call. It was sometime, I believe, in 2006, if if I remember correctly, to send somebody. I got a call to send somebody down to Goldman Sachs office to have a private meeting. And it was the genesis of the Lenovo's purchase of the IBM PC business. And that was a true milestone in my career. We worked on both sides of that deal. I I can't, I don't want to, we did not broker that deal, but we worked on the communications of both sides of that. Uh, A lot of those meetings took place in the Ogilvy Huali office in Beijing. It was really a fantastic experience because we watched an important Chinese brand acquire a long-time global PC brand in IBM. What was the ramifications of that is people in, let's say, North Carolina were going to be waking up and all of a sudden their new employer would be a Chinese company. And these are people that knew nothing about China, and the communications issues and challenges and opportunities around that are incredible. I was advising the HR manager, the branding people, on a lot of how to engage and how to, you know, how to integrate and how to build a culture. I'm proud to say Lenovo is. Uh, I've been told it's the leading. PC company globally. It could be one or two. I, I don't know what the, the exact uh, ranking is. But it's seen today as being a a global company. And a lot of the lessons that... I, I, I Credit goes to the Lenovo team and the Lenovo Vision. Credit goes to a lot of the steps that they took that, that I think were important in getting to where they are today.
0: I think that's an interesting example because I would say that a majority of Americans, or a majority of non-Chinese, have no idea that Lenovo is a Chinese brand. And I often use it as an example for people to say, well, here's a Chinese brand, Lenovo. And they look at me and they said, didn't know it was from China. Is country of origin uh, a necessity for Chinese brands? Do people have to recognize it as being Chinese or that doesn't really matter people just look at brands they don't care about country of origin you know when we used to do the brand z before there was always that discussion about brand china and country of origin is that a thing or is it not that necessary uh especially given the lenovo example that you just mentioned
1: i think it matters i mean i think country of origin matters i can tell you even in my own purchase behavior you buy a, a German manufactured car, for example. You feel different about a BMW or Mercedes Benz, right? You or a Japan manufactured automobile. I do believe country of origin matters. I think one of the great observations that we've been able to witness is the change of what brand China represented. When we started out to where it is today, because today, you know, you see a lot of leading technology brands. I think if you ask people today what brand China is about, you'd get lots of different opinions, but you definitely get technology prowess. I don't think that belief that cheaply made in China anymore translates to a lot of different brands that are out there. Used to, but not much anymore.
0: Do you recommend to your clients that they should proudly say, proudly made in China? That should be something maybe not on the front page, but maybe back in the About Us on page three. Talk about their origins and is that important or is that something still you need to bring out at the right
1: time? It depends on where you're operating. So to give you a blanket answer, I don't think is the right answer. So it depends on which country, what the consumer sentiment is about that country. I would, you know, the really successful brands, you were just talking about a lot of people question where Lenovo comes from, and that's very successful. TikTok. I mean, people don't really know that TikTok was a Chinese company. For the United States market, obviously, because there's a lot of different sentiment around China as a rising power I'd be, and there's a lot of kind of negative commentary about, you know, the U.S. competition with China. I wouldn't highlight that per se, but in other markets you might just, you might emphasize that. You know, when it comes to brands, country of origin is important, but it is one of a number of factors. You know, let's remember what brands are. Brands are a combination of rational benefits and emotional ties people have to those benefits. And if the brand is delivering consistently and for someone, that's how you build brand loyalty. And I think the focus on what is the rational benefit, what makes the brand different, and what kind of emotional Relationship has with the consumer is almost more important than the country of origin. And when I say the emotional tie, that can be in a number of different ways. One of which is really does it deliver what it says it delivers time and again? I mean, For technology, the last thing you want to do is have booting up problems with your PC. I'm on a computer now that I've not had to service it for the last three years. When I have a problem, it's like, oh my gosh.
0: I think one of the places that most Americans, at least, are exposed to Chinese brands is on Amazon. There's probably over hundreds of thousands of Chinese brands on Amazon selling directly to Western consumers. But the reality is that many of them are not really ready to embrace branding or advertising. You mentioned the difference back in the early 2000s or around 2005, 2007, when Chinese brands started to realize that there was a big price gap between themselves and the foreign brands. That's certainly the case now, and there are Brands like Anchor, the technology brand, they've done fairly well. But most of the brands aren't into branding or advertising still. What what do you see as their reluctance? Why are they not being able to embrace this more and stand out and try to promote themselves and ideally sell a more premium product?
1: Because I I think a lot of those brands, or many of them maybe just be products, (laughs) not every product is a brand, by the way, (laughs) they probably are competing more on price point than they are on a competitive differential. Look at branding and marketing is expensive. A lot of people will put their brands out there and see what kind of bites they get. We would argue that you know you should do the proper research, you should do the proper targeting, you should know the markets that you're going into. You can do it in a cost-effective way, particularly today, but I would say a lot of those SMEs are competing on price and not on being different. When you enter the league of being a brand and being a bit more premium, you start to have a relationship with your consumer and that branding is kind of your insurance policy for long-term growth of the of the the brand so it takes spending it takes reinforcement i would i would argue that you know that's the difference in in those those companies that succeed versus those that do not
2: and and do you also think that perhaps it's a cultural thing that a lot of the manufacturers that we're talking about, a lot of these brands that have sold or that are selling and selling quite well on Amazon, it's more of a cultural thing, as in they haven't been exposed to uh, the marketing discipline or they haven't been exposed to how brands are built. You know, historically, if I'm not wrong, they've also been OEM manufacturers for bigger brands. uh, And they've kind of, over, over the years, they've kind of realized that manufacturing and just putting a logo on a product that does very similar to what a Philips headphones does, or very similar to what an Apple phone does, for example, or a device. Perhaps not the Apple example, but a lot of home electronics. Do you think there's a, a little bit more of a cultural context as well, and just some education that might uh, benefit a lot of these OEM manufacturers in order for them to then create more of an emotional bond with some of their products?
1: Putting your listing, your your product on Amazon, you have a commute, an audience. A customer community already and you don't have to go through a lot of the hard work. Where a lot of the companies have failed is because they've not been able to understand the nuances of the local market. I used to work very closely with Miles Young who was the CEO of Ogilvy in Asia and then a global CEO And he used to say, a brand is not successful until the local market tells you so. I think a lot of the failures come and the difficulties come because companies don't understand the nuances of operating. I used to use a great example to try to explain to Chinese companies what they needed to do to succeed globally. I would take the really successful U.S. Uh, global companies and I would show them why they were successful. Take IBM. For many years, the leader of IBM was a guy by the name uh, Henry Chow. In my formative years, IBM was very Chinese. But they had a Chinese staff that dealt with uh, everything they needed to work, and it worked out perfectly for them. Intel, under uh, Ian Yang, uh, this is during my time, was predominantly Chinese, and they've done extremely well. So I, I would go to the Chinese companies, I'd say, when you go to the U.S., find a number of senior executives that understand the local market and that can operate in that local market. You look at a little bit of the composition of what Lenovo had done. I mean, when the Lenovo deal went down, the CEO moved from China to the US to head to the global headquarters. That's a commitment that I've not seen many companies do. So I think the easiest way to go about it is take a page from the successful global companies that done very well in China, uh, study what they've done well, and then do the same thing in the US or elsewhere.
2: We've touched a little bit about some of the challenges that Chinese brands are facing abroad. Do you think there's, given recent news, do you think, do you think it's more cultural or is there also uh, a regulatory component to uh, what Chinese uh, technology brands are likely to face in the future in the US market?
1: Historically, I gotta say, it was much easier. To read the tea leaves was much easier. The last several years have become much more difficult. Now, I love operating in the business community in both China and the U.S. And uh, because I feel like business that helps people be more productive, or brings them joy, or feeds them, or whatever, or consumerism, is more apolitical. My whole mission in life, I believe, is, you know, the peaceful coexistence of China from the experience that I've had, and the rest of the world. Now I, I don't want to be naive and say that hasn't become more difficult with a lot of the politics and the regulatory framework that's happened. So in certain companies and brands that you know have reached out to us, to me, and uh, that there is a, a greater political component to it. I like the, I believe problems can be solved when people are sitting around the table discussing them. That will always be my recourse would be how do we get people to sit and talk to understand each other there's so much misunderstanding i mean i joke that i've made this china and and the u.s kind of my communications industry as part of my career mission and i'm failing (laughs) miserably because because there's so much misunderstanding and misinformation out there
2: excellent so so what do you think are the consistent communications mistakes uh, Chinese brands uh, make when they go abroad? Uh, I think we've touched some, uh, on some of the surface, but are there specific examples that you can share with the audience today?
1: I think the, the, the biggest problems are, come when, when the Chinese brands that are going global feel they can adopt the Chinese way, impose that on the marketplace that they're going to. That happens more often than not, they you know, this is our way, this is the way we do it, you know this is our way, we're not going to change. Those problems exist often and we see that often and sometimes we won't even work on a client project because if they're so insistent on their way or the highway, then it's not going to work. And we don't want to waste somebody's money. That happens a lot. I've worked with a bank in the US that wanted to build out a broader base of customers, both Chinese and non-Chinese. But they had only predominantly only Chinese staff. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. I've worked with other Chinese companies that have hired Western specialists, let's say, in the U.S. in a certain area, and their business has done wonderfully. Because it's the same story that I mentioned to you about that IBM or that Intel story, is that the people matter. The understanding of the marketplace matters. And I think that you need that type of sensitivity to succeed now, there are companies that haven't done well. Say DD, for example, that was more of a China listing regulatory issue than anything else. So DD was a was a famous one that didn't go well. I think Hire has done exceptionally well in the in the marketplace. I remember, you know, searching for what is it refrigerators for my kids for their college dorms or something, and you could only buy like a Hire, right? So. We worked with a, a wig company, one of the global leading manufacturers of wigs in the US. And they had a really aggressive expansion plan where they were going to build 200 stores. They couldn't even finish their first retail shop. So I think sometimes thinking it's your way or the highway, we're going to do it just like China, doesn't work. You got to hire experts. You got to work with them. You know, there's no way. I think there's no shortcuts in that.
2: We, we all read the news and there's obviously greater p- polarization between many of the world powers, China and the U.S. included. While there's, you know, there, there are a lot of differences um, between both powers and you've also mentioned in your book you're trying to, you encourage people to try to understand each other uh, or understand cultures in order for them to work on common themes. What areas, where do you think that the U.S. and China could probably find uh, a shared mission or work together on certain types of collaboration that could that, that could help both economies in both countries.
1: The thing that I care about a lot is the truthful narrative of what's happening. Now I have my biases. Uh, I've had a wonderful experience. Sometimes I feel like the understanding, the lack of understanding of what's happening in China or the reasons why certain things happen or not, people just jump to conclusions because, for lack of a enough discourse on what's happening there. I, I have this in my book. I talk a lot about. But my book is a is a kind of a my attempt at humor, but it's more of a way to talk about. This is the Western way, this is the Chinese way. They're not right or wrong, they're just different. And that's what I've tried to do, I think, in my time in the U.S., is to just share a perspective to help people understand better. And the same thing for China, is I've tried to help them understand what's happening in the U.S. There's a lot of understanding. I think there's, at least in the circles that I've traveled, there's much more understanding of what's happening in the US than there was about what was happening in China. I just think that that dialogue, that communications flow needs to happen to keep people in check and under- help understand what's going on. I do work with groups that are working on uh, collaborative cancer solutions. And so, healthcare, I think, is a really big one, actually. I mean, healthcare has. No borders, right? Somebody's sick. They can be sick anywhere in the world. And if we can help each other in healthcare, I think that would be wonderful. Climate control is another one. Actually, I was in a meeting in Beijing and I heard a story once. There was a Western company that was ha- having trouble competing with a local company that was undercutting its price and everything, but they had a better... Climate solution than the local company. And they won a Chinese procurement bid over that local company because their technology was greater. That third area, I've been betting, I don't think it will happen in space. I don't, you know, sports is cool. Sports, I was rooting for the Brooklyn Nets because it's owned by Joe Tsai and the all oh, those guys from Alibaba. In my ideal world, I'd like the U.S. and China to model how superpowers can communicate with each other. <laughs> Philanthropy, how does the U.S. and China come to the aid of... You know, people in Ukraine or something. So
0: what's your take on Goomania, Scott? Uh, Is Eileen bridging the gap or is she just going to end up pissing off both Chinese and Americans at some point in time? I, I too, am a fan. I think more of this is necessary, but I just wonder if this is the right way to do it.
1: You know what? Uh, I have no issues with what she did. Bryce... You know, your kid, if he was great enough to be an athlete and he couldn't make the U.S. team, you'd have him go try out for Taiwan, right? I mean, I actually spoken with my kids about that before. I don't have a problem with her representing China or her representing other, you know, Chinese brands, U.S. brands representing U.S., uh... US entities. Uh, I think it's, you know, this is her moment. She's trained for it for uh, many years and she's entitled to, you know, to maximize her opportunities, I think, during this moment in time. I thought she did a pretty good job of, as a young person, being able to deal with a lot of her fame that she's, she's met up with
2: it's your kids as well. Uh, and I think young people have an opportunity to travel the world early on in their life. Uh, they're a lot more sensitive to the issues and they they just make for better global citizens. And I think uh, not enough people have that opportunity.
0: I noticed recently through our web analytics that a fair majority of our listeners are people under the age of 25 years old. Uh, Scott, what would be some advice that you could give to them regarding getting into the communications business related to China? What skills do you recommend for fresh grads that are looking to get into the comms business and PR business that you love so much?
1: Thank you for that, Bryce. Uh, I listened to a podcast that had a leader of a private equity company talking about the skills that are needed to succeed in business today. And those skills are, he said, first and foremost, are being a great communicator, being able to speak, being able to write. Those two skills, I would suggest young people work to hone as much as possible. Not write like messaging, like text messages or things like that, but to properly create thoughts in their mind and be able to communicate them effectively. That to me is really important. For the longest time I was hypersensitive about my presentation skills or my ability to write, but you have got to throw yourself into the ring. Take any opportunity to present, to speak, to write an article for your school newspaper or internal newsletter at work. Do whatever you can to hone your communication skills. I think being curious is really very important. Being able to research and do some comprehensive research is very important. And so I'm saying this for Bryce because I know that Bryce was the leader of an activation company. But Miles Young once said, execution is the highest form of strategy. And I think young people need to understand how to take an idea and how to execute it. And work through that and be resilient in the process. And not to be too sensitive to criticism. Every criticism, every failure is a, is a boost. My mother used to say to me, every knock is a boost. So every time someone wants to bring you down, just remember, that's uh, something that will boost you up. And so those are some of the things that I, I recommend.
2: So Scott, you've had a long, illustrious uh, career, and you continue to push the boundaries of what's possible within the world of PR uh, across different um, countries. Um, but if you had to you know, tell your 25-year-old self, uh, what would you recommend your 25-year-old self today? So
1: I was extremely fortunate. Uh, in my career that I had a client in my very young age that I was asking whether I should go to business school or law school, and he was the president of the American Management Association. And he said to me, don't do either. He said, Asia's rising. Get a job in Asia and go get some experience. Greatest advice I've ever had changed my world. I met my wife. I spent 34 years in the region. It was the best advice I ever had. So I do feel getting out of your comfort zone, for those young people who listen, getting out of your comfort zone and going to do something and exploring a new location, geography, is really important. And I just so happened to land in china which was the fastest growing and one of the the stories that will shape these last several decades so i appreciated that advice
2: are we ready for the ab test ali Uh, We are indeed, we are indeed ready for the A-B test. We have a number of options over here. Um, Let me just start off by explaining how it works. We'll give you two options, two words or two phrases, two sentences. And Scott, you need to choose between one or the other. You don't have a lot of time. You can always explain your choice. There might be a bit of chuckle, but it's all for good fun. Number one, soccer or football? Soccer. Orange or red?
1: Orange. I played soccer for the orange men of Syracuse University, so there you go.
2: Beijing or Shanghai? Beijing. Uh, what would, What did you like better, morning mail or the a morning mojo?
1: I love them both. The, the Monday morning mail was done as an internal exercise to keep everybody in the company uh, up to date. I did it for 12 years. I loved it. When I changed roles at Ogilvy, someone asked me if I'd be still sending out my regular missives. So I do that in the Monday Morning Mojo, which Bryce so kindly introduced earlier. So I love them both. It's my own little mental health exercise about trying to point out that there's good in the world beyond everything we read and hear and so forth. So that's uh, I like them both.
2: China or the U.S.?
1: Both. I've lived in both places equal amounts of my time. And I've had a wonderful experience in both, so...
2: A book or TV?
1: I love to read. I probably watch more TV, so to be honest and truthful in the spirit of what I said earlier, I think I'd say TV, but uh, I like a good book as well.
2: World peace or climate change?
1: You know what? I'm going to go with world peace.
2: If you don't have world
1: peace, but you have a wonderful climate, (laughs) I'm not sure... How oh, wonderful it is. You can enjoy that. So.
2: Edward Bernays or David Ogilvy?
1: Wow, that's a tough one, actually. They're both brilliant in their own right.
0: Edward Bernays being the father of modern PR, right?
1: Modern PR. He was brilliant and he was strategic and he changed a lot of views on a lot of things. I think uh, David Ogilvy probably because I've just lived in his culture for the last 34 years.
2: Martin Sorrell or uh, Mark Reed?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I have great respect for both of these people. You know, I grew up in the organization that Martin created, and I and I appreciate everything that he did. I think Mark is an inspiring leader. I loved watching him take the reins from Martin. So. I'm I'm not going to do A and B, I'm going to do, that's going to be A, B, <laughs>
0: both. So really, thank you for being on the show today. It was really insightful, and informative, and we really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. This is. Uh, I enjoy talking about China and the U.S. and the public relations business. And uh, thank you for your time.
0: And thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode. Join us next week for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day.